0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Wright Thompson, the phenomenal senior writer for ESPN. We've had some great guests lately, including Bria Felicien, Ivan Gazidis, and Semra Hunter. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, the Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content, We'll have Wright Thompson on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham, the radio voice of Inter-Miami and a co-host of the Chelsea mic Up podcast. Chris, it's been a while. Thanks for joining me. How are you?
1: Far too long. Let's uh, get cracking here on the soccer news. <laughs>
0: Lots to talk about. Let's start with the game that just ended. We're recording late on Sunday here. U.S. Women's National Team 2, Brazil nil. Kristen Press, Megan Rapinoe score for the U.S. in a challenging game uh, against the team coached by our previous interview guest, Pia Sundhaga. What were your thoughts here?
1: Well, I first want to start off by saying that the way that Kristen Press takes that first goal is exquisite. And I thought it was uh, really interesting that Ali Wagner kept pointing out, well, this is kind of the tactic here. It's kind of overwhelm various wings, right? So if the ball is on the left-hand side, Crystal Dunn can get forward, and then Lindsey Horan can have the ball in front of her, and then Kristen Press is running in that channel, and kind of that wave of three down that left-hand side is really difficult. So Kristen Press gets 1v1 against the center back and is able to get around her and curl it in the corner without ever looking at her target, like knew, how, knew where the back post was and picked it out to perfection. But it was kind of a weird balance between the U.S. for me being a bit wasteful both in terms of the way that they uh, kept possession and uh, the chances that they got I mean there was a couple of clear one-on-one breakaway opportunities that they just don't do enough with and also kind of an openness I thought Brazil had their moments in the game to create chances and probably were a little bit unlucky to not get a goal from this game so it was just a bit open and and not as precise as as I would have expected from a U.S. women's national team performance.
0: Yeah I mean certainly not perfect and yet the US has two wins in two games one nothing against Canada another difficult game different type of game in the first game but in both games i think they have been open maybe more than expected i think Canada had a couple opportunities that they didn't finish they could have scored against the US and i know our standards are so freaking high i think this is is this nine straight clean sheets for Alyssa Nair. <laughs> like, it, just a, a crazy amount uh, of scoreless games in a row from the U.S. defense. So they do deserve credit for that. In this game, a couple of things stood out to me. Press, you mentioned, there was another play early in the second half where she just ended three defenders in the Brazilian box and was unfortunate not to have a goal beyond the end of that. But just a breathtaking move that she had. Really confident on the ball in this game. Uh, and then Crystal Dunn who ran basically the length of the field right after they had scored their first goal, um, the U S to, to prevent another goal. It reminded me of the old Javier Mascherano play in the 2014 world cup. Yes. Uh, with the, the positive that Crystal didn't get the awful injury that he got, uh, in this game. Um, but like Crystal Dunn can obviously cover a lot of ground. She can get forward. She can, You know, see the space, create things. She did that this game. Tremendous all-around player who I I think is is kind of at the height of her powers right now. She has such an impact on games, it seems like. But you know, here we are, six points in two games, and you know, you look at at some other things on the field. Are we learning anything? Eighteen players are going to make the Olympic team, so five fewer than make. The World Cup team. So there's going to be some hard cuts ahead, and, and games like this are going to have a role in who gets picked and who doesn't. Of
1: course. And I think you're seeing a little bit of experimentation from Vladko Antonovsky because uh, brings on Sophia Smith. Uh, to replace Lynn Williams as the first change for the U.S. There was a bit of uh, surprise that she was the first one to come off the bench and didn't really uh, have, have too much to do just in terms of there weren't a lot of chances that were falling her way. Mega Rapino came on as a sub and scored. Uh, I, I can't imagine anyone else taking her place uh, in that side. But uh, look, when you have such a limited number of players to take, you do have to figure out, all right, can we take one? Do we need to take two right backs because that position isn't fully settled? Where? can we afford to not bring full depth at every position? You don't have cover for every position because X player can play in two and three separate areas. So yeah, I think these are really difficult questions to answer, presuming the Olympics even happens, by the way. I do think that there's a lot of questions that Vlad Gondonavsky is probably answering right now with the she Cup and then uh, presumably with the NWSL and the Challenge Cup uh, with its return and then in the limited regular season that there will be before the Olympics.
0: I know you had some frustrations today with Lynn Williams, who who gets herself, in dangerous spots, but doesn't always make the most of them.
1: Yeah, I I mean, obviously she's slid in behind by this incredibly good through ball from Alex Morgan. Perfectly angled to break the defense. She's well in behind. 1v1 on what I thought was the keeper, but then slows down at the vital moment to allow a defender to come back. She doesn't even get a clean strike away. And I just thought that was indicative of a performance that. I I just didn't see a ton of quality from Lynn Williams in those areas. Again, it's always popping up in good spots, and that's obviously a good thing to have, but I felt like there was probably a reason why she was the first player taken off in this match because there was a lot of good things that happened in and around her that kind of died at her feet. So I, I do think that there's probably two positions you're looking at right now in terms of where could you afford to improve that right wing area. Uh, you know, Tobin Heath obviously will have something to say about that spot. But in her stead, who, who would come in? And then right back is another one uh, where you've kind of got several choices. But everything else, if you said this is a, a starting 11, I'm just talking about the Brazil match, this is a starting 11 that will feature in a World Cup final Nine of those eleven places you can lock him in, uh, although probably Rapino would, would would get into that side you'd figure in some way. But I mean Lavelle, Haran, Ertz in midfield makes sense. Dahl Camper, Sauerbrunn, Dunn at the back, Nair and goal, uh, you know, Morgan and Press in, in that forward three. That that's nine elevenths of a World Cup final side. The question is who kind of takes those final places.
0: It is a bummer not to have Sam Mewis. Uh who's out injured right now it's a bummer not to have tobin heath out injured Mm -hmm. right now you would have to think they would be in the mix for starting spots uh on this team if they're at full strength wednesday usa argentina looks like the u.s is going to win this tournament uh which i guess has a trophy right (laughs) (laughs) i believe so but it's called the she
1: believes cup so there has to be a cup
0: so there you go. Uh, lots to talk about, though, with what's been going on this weekend. Busy soccer weekend everywhere. Probably the marquee game in Europe was Inter against AC Milan, crosstown rivals. And I, I fear that I've jinxed Ivan Gazidis with his appearance on <laughs> on the podcast last week because I don't think you're get him back. they they lost to spazia Milan did, and and now three nothing. Uh, lost to Inter. Inter starting to pull away a little bit in Italy, four points ahead of AC Milan in the standings. Terrific game from Romelu Lukaku, setting up Lataro Martinez's first goal, scoring a terrific goal himself for the third one. I think he scored now in four straight Milan derbies and got a, a measure, I think, of satisfaction against Latan Ibrahimović, who... There, you know, obviously there's been some uh, aggro between the two of them, at least in that cup game not long ago. What do you think of this game? Did you get, get a chance to see all of it? Yeah,
1: I, I, I've only seen the highlights but uh, you're totally right about Lukaku and it's funny because now whenever I watch him I have Roberto Martinez's voice in my head as his national team manager who appears on CBS's Champions League coverage and there's always that kind of little friction oh, is Lukaku the best center forward in the world when Lewandowski has some uh, ridiculous performance for Bayern? Uh, but on performances like that. And that finish for the third goal is absolutely sensational. And I think you kind of saw a variety in his game. And, you know, I'm, unfortunately, I just don't watch Serie A week in, week out to kind of know how Lukaku is doing kind of in the play-in, play-out moments. Because I do think that you know, when, you, when you saw him in the Premier League he has sensational moments even for Manchester United club that he struggled with he had sensational moments it was about what did he contribute to the team in the in the intervening periods and I do think that that's probably the area where he's most evolved is getting involved in the play and contributing more into the game rather than just being that finisher and goal scorer so in terms of the significance though it's absolutely fundamental for Inter just in terms of to have some kind of reward for a huge spend on their squad even in this COVID season for Antonio Conte who's you know got be be better in Europe, but you bring him in to compete for league titles, and you'd think it would be Juventus who'd be the ones you're fighting off. But it turns out it's your uh, in city rival uh, AC Milan. And the thing that's so unfortunate, you know, I saw some videos of uh, the AC Milan fans outside the stadium. I mean, this is another game where you just look at it and go, "Man, how incredible would this be? The 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 return of these two huge Italian giants, right, who have struggled for so long in the shadow of Juventus." This is their breakout season, and it's not in front of the supporters. What a day it would have been at the San zero. I and mean, what a day it was anyway, because uh, Inter comes out with this huge win, and it, it's so impactful because they're now four points clear at the
0: top. Yeah, Christian Eriksen starting to have a little bit more of a role with Inter, which is interesting considering we thought he might leave in January. He ends up sticking around, has the free kick goal that vanquishes uh, AC Milan in the Cup, and then... Has a has a nice role in this game today. I thought he he was a useful player for them. I don't see any reason why Erickson shouldn't be a useful player on a regular basis. Doesn't need to necessarily be the star, but at least it doesn't feel like he's just off to the side at this point. And maybe Antonio Conte deserves some credit here. Like I think he's kind of annoying sometimes with how often <laughs> he like calls out his bosses and owners. You know, but yeah, the guy wins. And he's, yeah. he's won in different countries. He's uh, he's backed up a lot of this stuff. Not, maybe not as much in Europe, but I think he's a terrific coach. Let's move on here to England. And before we get into some specific results, I want to ask you about Christian Pulisic and Chelsea at this point. I know there were a fair number of people when Thomas Tuchel got hired by Chelsea recently who thought, oh, this is good for Christian Pulisic. He played for Tuchel at Dortmund. They know each other. And my initial reaction, actually having covered Christian Pulisic at Dortmund when he played for Thomas Tuchel, was there were stretches when Tuchel didn't play him very much. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so far, now there have been injury issues which continue with Pulisic, which is obviously unfortunate and concerning. But has he st- has he started a league game yet? I don't think he has. I think he started a cup game, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned? Um, So I, I do think that
1: in this recent run, so ahead of the uh, the game at the weekend against Southampton, uh, there was a revelation that he picked up another calf injury, which, you know, is definitely, we're talking about things that are concerning. For me, it's always uh, the injuries more than the, the the playing time. So I guess the question is, like, what would be... A concerning thing to to have happen to Christian Pulisic right now, from a U.S. perspective, right? We're talking if we're talking about from an American perspective, right? As much as him not playing isn't ideal, I do think he's proven enough at this level to suggest that he's going to have a really good European club career. It's just a down moment, and I do, and I think as well when you look at the way that Thomas Ducal is currently deploying the team, if you're not thinking about it from a Pulisic-centric perspective, and you're thinking about it from a Chelsea-centric perspective. It's working, right? This system has gotten five wins, two draws, no losses... It's a front three, so that's kind of one less attacking position. I'm surprised that he went to wingbacks. And look, I, you know, if you're England right now, you're probably just as concerned that Ben Chilwell, you're probably only top-level left-back, is not playing because Marcus Alonso is preferred. At least from politic standpoint, the player who is his approximation right now is Timo Werner, who's one of the best center-forward-slash-attackers in the world. So I do think that this system has kind of not done a lot of players in the Chelsea team very good, but it's done well for their results. So we'll see against Atletico Madrid whether or not this deployment of the Chelsea side is ultimately what's going to be uh, the the long-term future. Because I do think that, like, yes, it's working now, but ultimately it gets judged against top-level opposition, against winning the Premier League. And, you know, there are a lot of players right now who don't look at their very best, who Chelsea spent a lot of money on. I mentioned Chilwell already, Ziyech, you know, Havertz has been injured, but I I don't know what this system looks like for Kai. Havertz. There's a bunch of players who are not getting a run of games right now. Even N'Golo Kante has struggled to get into the team uh, because of the way that Tuchel is deploying the side. So I'm not concerned because I have a belief now that Christian Pulisic is good at football. He'll be good for the U.S. men's national team. So it's not like fundamental that he has to play every week for Chelsea. But uh, I do think the current moment has been not been good for him, both from a playing standpoint. Like, I don't think he's been good in recent matches that he's played. But also the situation and the system uh, probably doesn't suit him right now.
0: I do have to say that the Champions League matchup I am most looking forward to is Atletico Madrid against Chelsea because... I could see a number of different things happening here. I think it's a a really interesting matchup. And I am wondering which Atletico Madrid team we're going to see, just because they haven't been performing as well lately. But let's talk about Liverpool. The nosedive continues. Fourth straight loss at home, which is kind of insane to talk about, because I think the last time that happened with Liverpool at Anfield was like in the 1920s. This time, it was their crosstown rival, Everton, winning 2-0. First time that I think Everton has won at Anfield this century? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, it's, it's been since 1999, so yes, that would count as this century.
0: And, and, you know, like, it's actually been a lot of fun for me to follow Everton recently. And, and like, the the sort of running gag of... Carlo Ancelotti and Duncan Ferguson, his assistant on the sideline, <laughs> whenever they score, like Carlo's like blowing into his tea and like acting like That's, it's no big deal. That was
1: an all-timer, the the, the tea celebration <laughs> against Spurs,
0: all-timer from Carlo. <laughs> and Duncan Ferguson's like losing his mind, like right behind him. Um, just fun stuff, but like with Liverpool at this point, they've acknowledged Jurgen Klopp; they're not going to win the league, which is accurate. They will not. It's really now going to be about making the top four. They're in sixth right now. Um, just a complete. I, I don't know what to. I just. The wheels have fallen off since Christmas when they were in first place. And Klopp's been through a lot, a lot of personal stuff. He lost his mother, which is awful. He's been very prickly with media uh, over the last several weeks, it seems like. And that team just they were they were totally outplayed i thought by everton in this game which i i wasn't expecting to see
1: no not at all and it's funny cuz uh, you mentioned how they were they were top at christmas they'd beaten crystal palace 7-0 and then uh, you kind of look at the the next game they play against West Bromwich Albion. That was the game that Joel Matip got hurt, and I think it was kind of the ultimate straw that broke the camel's back. We've talked about the center backs thing uh, with Liverpool, but I saw someone correctly point out that you know the the move that Richarlison puts on was it Nat Nat, Nat Williams? I, I believe is the name of the 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 center back that came in for Nat Phillips. I'm sorry, the the one who came on as a sub for the injured Henderson. But either way, like the the move that Richarlison gets off doesn't happen against one of Liverpool's top centre-backs. So, look, that, that's that been part of it. But the other aspect of it as well, and part of it is a balanced thing when you don't have centre-backs, is there's their, their goal-scoring apparatus is not been the same they you right. know they didn't score against uh, Everton they won against Leicester won against City uh, scoreless against Brighton scoreless against Burnley scoreless against Southampton scoreless against Newcastle like their chance creating mechanism has just not been as sharp I think Diogo Jota's has probably been another one's been a huge miss right. for them just because he added a different spark he added a different ability um, Firmino is not adding as much in terms of a goal scoring ability I don't think Sadio Mane has had a particularly good uh, run of games either and it's just a lot of things that are conspiring to a Liverpool not looking terribly sharp. It looked like it was starting to happen a little bit before the COVID break happened uh, when they went out in the Champions League to Atletico Madrid. And then, you know, they were so far clear of winning the Premier League that, like, you know, they they let some results slip. But... I do think this is probably the culmination of a run, and now I think the ultimate urgency is on them to kind of go again, right? In the transfer market, probably bring in another player or two that can really impact the squad um, and figure out what kind of the next era is going to be. Klopp has absolutely earned the right to be the one to architect that, but I think at the end of this season, they need to figure out what the next run of Liverpool is going to be. But as you said, the current issue is getting into the top four because Leicester are looking incredibly impressive. It look like they're going to hang on to one of those two places, or one of those four places. Manchester United get another win against Newcastle. So it probably is one team for three spots between West Ham, Chelsea, and Liverpool. And uh, we'll see uh, what kind of Liverpool's ability to compete for that is.
0: You know, I think maybe Liverpool fans got spoiled a little bit. Like, they haven't spent that much money in recent years on players if you look at overall spend. And yet, they won the Premier League. Mm-hmm. They won Champions League. And I wonder if in some ways the Liverpool brass paid attention to that as well and felt like when January hits, we actually don't need to make some big signing for depth. But at that level, you need to have some depth. And I know they yeah. had a lot of injuries, but like it caught up to them, I feel and
1: like. It's, and it's a club that's so well-run on the men's side, we should say, because on the women's side, they're not. But on the men's side, uh, there's the, their planning is exceptional. Um, they're incredibly well-run. And the idea that you know you lose Joel Matip in that game against West Brom, yeah, maybe you're hoping he can come back and recover. But I mean, even as it is, right? It's Van Dijk, Gomez, and Matip. That's three. Like in general, carrying four center backs is not that uncommon. Uh, that that can play. And the idea that that injury would happen and you wouldn't on January one try and find a center back deal no you wait until the last day of the deadline you also have a you do you bring in a center back in in Kabak from from Schalke who's done nothing but lose for two years so i mean that that's not like it it takes some uh coaching and motivation to get a player out of that kind of morass that being a Schalke player is. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a team that is completely, as you say, rudderless at the moment.
0: Meanwhile, at the top of the table, Man City wins 1-0 at Arsenal. Early, early goal from Raheem Sterling in this one, and then Arsenal was actually okay, I thought, the rest of the way. But City still gets three points out of it. Listen to this. 13 straight league wins for City now. 18 straight wins in all competitions, 25 games unbeaten in a row. Haven't lost a game since November 21st, the 2-0 at Spurs. City leads the Premier League by 10 points now over Leicester and United. I guess United's in second by goal difference. Like, for a long time, we we said, oh, nobody's going to get 100 points in the league this season. <laughs> and, and you know what city might i haven't checked to see what the possibilities are but like they've only lost twice in the league
1: yeah so they have 39 available points and they're on 59 now so i think 98 is the uh that's the highest okay. thing they can go so they, they, they drew too many games early to me if you want to chuck one more in in terms of stats that i think is indicative of what's happening here it's that they've oh that, that in this 18 match winning run in all in, in all competitions it's 12 clean sheets and in none of the games in which they gave away a goal have they given up more than one right they gave up one to arsenal uh in in the in the cup in the league cup they gave up one to chelsea uh in the premier league that was a late one as well uh, one to cheltenham randomly to go behind right. in the fa cup which is so funny in retrospect uh liverpool uh, the the 1-1 swansea scored against them and everton scored against them but that's like six goals in, in in that entire run and the incredibly unlikely partnership of john stones and ruben Diaz, now it's not just like good. It's forceful. Like, it, it doesn't seem like they're going to concede. They don't give away uh, that many chances. I think kind of the, the biggest link in the chain that was missing, and I think it's what Guardiola was trying to solve in the beginning of the season, uh, was the the midfield link in that chain. Because Rodrigo was asked to play the same role that Fernandinho was, but I don't think he could at that point. And I do think that Guardiola made the adjustment of bringing Gunduan into the team, when normally, like, he would try, you know, Bernardo and De Bruyne or Foden and De Bruyne or previously David Silva and De Bruyne in front of that holding midfielder Now Gundogan's in there and while Gundogan is scoring goals for fun, um he still provides a more of a number 8's mentality as opposed to a number 10's mentality. So I do think there's just been that more cover uh, in the central midfield area. Cancelo being a player who can kind of squeeze into the midfield in that in that very Pep way where the fullback comes inside and play this incredibly, you know, varied role. Um it's all come together and these are all things that, you know, Pep has been experimenting with for a while that at the beginning of the season looked like it was just like, it didn't look like city at all. And at one point in the season, it just clicked and now they're exceptional.
0: Yeah. It's incredible. If you told me at the beginning of the season, that Gunda might be player of the year. Yeah. I would have said, I, I don't believe you. <laughs> uh, if you had told me Ruben Diaz would have the impact that he's had, I would have been surprised by that. And it, you know, De Bruyne is just coming back now from injury. Uh, Aguero's been out for seems like forever. The entire uh, season, basically. I mean, and and even like a Gabriel Jesus hasn't had that big of an impact. He's had some goals. It's just this is a good team, man. And yeah. and they have it going right now. And I am I'm really curious now that Champions League is going again, if City might finally do it this year. Because like on form. They're the best team in Europe. And it's not really that close lately.
1: No, no, not at all. But there is like a feeling of, to make an NBA comparison, that they're the Milwaukee Bucks, where (laughs) they're really good in the regular season. And yet in the play, like their playoff style of play... This doesn't work the same as it does in regular season kind of environments. Like, I am still, you know, thinking about Borussia Mönchengladbach, who just came <laughs> off a really bad result in the league. Like, maybe they can do City. Like, it, it really, like, until Pep doesn't do a Pep in terms of a, a, a team selection, until Manchester City is holding the Champions League trophy, <laughs> I'm going to presume that they have it. Like, there is no number of games in a row that they can win in domestic competitions that will make that will make me believe. Oh yeah, nailed on for Champions League, no doubt. <laughs> Especially when, like, you know, like we thought that City were in a really good place. I mean, they walloped Real Madrid in the round of 16 in the tie at the Etihad uh, and, you know, beat them away as well and then lose to Lyon in the quarterfinal. Like, you know, that's until they don't do things like that in the Champions League. (laughs) I'm not going to believe that they won't.
0: I will say this that I know there's a lot of games to be played still in Champions League, but it would be fun to have a City PSG final just because both of those clubs have spent so much money. Both of those clubs have aspired to win the Champions <laughs> was, League. At least this way, someone would.
1: would. Would that be cool or would that be like, I feel like there'd be a lot of pieces beforehand. Like, this is the end of,
0: <laughs> the of, of,
1: of football as we know it. The, like it, it would be it would be described as the worst thing that ever happened. Although, by the way, you mentioned PSG. They did lose by two goals to nil in the league uh, to Monaco today. Monaco, i had completely forgotten about them. Uh, but even with I'm looking at it here. 25% possession uh, beat Paris Saint-Germain away. So uh, they in the league have not been tremendous under Pochettino, even though obviously they pulled off that tremendous result in uh, in the Camp Nou.
0: Yeah, I think they're like four points behind Lille now in yep. the French league. They're in third. Uh,
1: they're behind Lyon as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, like people sort of take Lyon for granted with them, but that may not be the case this, this year, even though, and let's talk about Mainly Barcelona here, and and Lionel Messi. But obviously PSG winning four to one midweek in Champions League at Barcelona has become another sort of referendum on the state of FC Barcelona, along with the eight two against Bayern Munich in Champions League uh, last year, and people wondering is this the last. Blank, blank for Lionel Messi. Are we about to see the last Champions League game that Lionel Messi has played for Barcelona? Have we seen already the last trophy Lionel Messi has won for FC Barcelona? They're really not in it for a trophy much at this point. They are two goals behind Sevilla and Copa del Rey heading into the return leg. They're several points behind Atletico Madrid in the league. Now they're having an uphill mountain to climb against PSG in Champions League. And I guess my question then for you is, like, do you think this has all been a bluff from Messi, or do you think he's leaving?
1: I think he's leaving. And I, and I think that the main reason why is what we saw in midweek and also what we saw in the Clasico uh, where Real Madrid won away, um and you know, we're kind of clearly the better side in that one as well. And you know, Barcelona has improved in the league, like and they sometimes play some really good stuff. Um and really, even at times when you know things have gone poorly for Barcelona, they still play really good stuff in La Liga. The question is when they go up against the top sides in Europe, does Messi feel like he's got enough around him? And I thought there was a, a clip that went viral on social media. I thought Max Bredos pointed pointing this out. The the clip of PK Jar Pique, uh, yelling at Antoine Griezmann because they wanted to just keep possession of the ball for... Uh, it was larga posession is what he was shouting at the top of his lungs because they were getting the runaround from PSG. And, you know, with with with, Keane, with Agardi and Mbappe up top, they were just getting the runaround. And the fullbacks are pushing on for PSG. And now... You know, we always kind of thought, right? Like when Piqué and Mascherano was a central defense, it was always, oh, if he can just get at them, if he can just get at them, and you never could get at them because they would they always kept the ball and they figure out ways to win it back. But now you can get at Barcelona, right? And and that's just the vulnerability that they've not been able to solve either with kind of a greater sense of of keeping the ball, uh, you know, and and that kind of the the classic way or pressing to win it back higher up the pitch. But either way, it's just a vulnerable team, and it, it's going to take. Barcelona having world class at every position to where Lionel Messi looks around the pitch and goes, "All right, there's you know I I can win the Champions League with this team for him to feel comfortable." And so I do think that he's probably going to look towards the team, the teams that do. I don't even know if PSG really is that, um, and just in terms of all their world classes up top, like the the, the world class behind them, when they got to a Champions League final uh, is not really there. You know, you're looking at the cities. I don't know if Bayern would be interested in a thing like this, but. I just think that Messi has about had enough with being surrounded by a team that is not Champions League winning quality, uh, particularly as Real Madrid have run away with that competition. Uh, at least you know up until this past year, for you know three or four years before that.
0: Right now, like for me, like Man City seems like the most likely destination for Messi. We know they had a very lucrative package put together for him. Obviously, they wouldn't have to pay a transfer fee this time. So there aren't many teams in this. COVID stricken economy, including soccer economy, who can afford Lionel Messi's salary, forget like not having to pay a transfer fee. And and I, I to me, like, it seems like Man City can offer him more than PSG could uh, in terms of a team. I think Man City is more likely to win Champions League. Some might disagree with that statement. I also think he, you know, Pep, you know, just the relationship there. And who he'd have around him. And also, if we are to believe what Man City's offer to Messi included last summer, that was, I think it was three years at Man City and two at NYCFC in MLS, which is kind of intriguing as well, right? I mean, it would be
1: massive for MLS. I mean, (laughs) you can finally, you know, if you're uh, the people at NYCFC, been trying to get a stadium if you have under contract, Lionel Messi is going to be here in three years. You go to, I think they like, I, I actually read a lot about NYCFC stadium rumors. They fascinate me for some reason. Uh, <laughs> like they've got to like you know knock down some warehouse of elevators in order to build the stadium. I think, uh, you know, there's a parking garage dispute. Uh, those are, those negotiations have an increased level of urgency. If you say, in three years' time, if we get the stadium built, uh, Lionel Messi will be playing in it. So uh, I think it would be a massive step for um, ultimately a club in NYCFC that is, you know, a sleeping giant, in my opinion. Even as good as they've been in MLS, just as an MLS team. They're a good MLS team. But New York City should be a million times bigger than a good MLS team. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it would be extraordinary for them.
0: Professor Chris Whittingham's urban politics lecture <laughs> will take place on Tuesday night at 8 p.m. on Zoom.
1: <laughs> I don't even live in <laughs> New York City, you do, and I feel like you're, you're probably not even following this. I'm, I'm just such a dork.
0: I love that. All right, my friend, that was enjoyable. Thank you so much for joining me, Chris Whittingham.
1: We should do this again
0: soon. Let's take a quick break and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga, France's Ligue 1 or Copa Libertadores and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligue 1, Copa Libertadores and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device whether it's a mobile phone a tablet or directly on your tv with the fanatis app you can also watch the top leagues from turkey brazil and argentina fanatis features channels you know like be in sports in english and spanish gold tv and many more and it costs as little as 7.99 a month If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant-fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant-fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Wright Thompson. Our guest now is one of the great sports writers of our time and someone I'm proud to call a friend. Wright Thompson works for ESPN and is the New York Times bestselling author of the new book Pappy Land, A Story of Family, Fine Bourbon, and the Things That Last. He has also written a bunch of phenomenal soccer stories over the years, among other topics. There is a steep drop from his last guest appearance with Seth Meyers to this one, but we appreciate you taking it, my friend. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Well, you and Seth are uh, equally soccer obsessed. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the one of my favorite memories is he had this. Uh, uh, he hosted the Espies one year, and I sort of ended up through a random confluence of events being sitting at a ta- seated at a table with me and my wife Sonia, Seth Myers. John Walsh and John Skipper, as <laughs> Seth tried to talk John Skipper into getting the Disney jet to fly and see the U.S. women's national team in Mexico City the next day. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, this is this is how guys like this roll. I was like, oh, and so I immediately started negotiating. I was like, look, if he gets the jet, Sony and I are on it so none of it happened but i was i was trying to negotiate
0: (laughs) fantastic he is a good soccer fan seth myers um he actually supported my fifa presidential run back in 2011 on his twitter so i will always appreciate that (laughs) first off um i do want to send my condolences uh you just lost your uncle will who you described in your book as the patriarch of your family i'm sorry about that how are you doing
2: I appreciate that. We're doing well. We have a lot of really great memories. Uh, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I went down and he died uh, yesterday, oh, two wow. days ago. And I went down and saw him over the weekend and uh, talked to him. Uh, it was, you know, I actually got to say, you know, we actually talked. And I mm-hmm. I mean, I said to him, I understand this is the last time we'll ever see each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just thanked him for, you know, he really... Uh, stepped into, after I lost my dad, I mean, he specifically and intentionally stepped into that role, and I sure did appreciate it. And, uh, you know, he was a, uh, he was just a guy who was full of joy. He was the kind of person who who danced at weddings, you know? The most dangerous place in the world at a wedding was between Will and the dance floor, because he was on the (laughs) way there, and he was taking you with him. And uh, he, uh, you know, a couple years ago, he just mentioned offhandedly, that he'd never been to New York city. And I was just like, well, well, we could fix that. So, uh, I took him and we went and his favorite part was riding the subway. You know, he grew up <laughs> on a farm in Bentonia, Mississippi and, and talked about, he's like, you know, just the diversity of this place. Like all of the people living here together is incredible. And that was his favorite thing. Uh, that and, uh, and going to get bagels every morning. He just couldn't believe we could do that. So I have a lot of really great memories, and I don't have any regrets. Uh, so I'm I'm doing about as well as you can do with one of these.
0: I'm glad. Uh, I enjoyed your story of the various things in the book that you did with him in New York City, including taking him to Madison Square, or Levin Madison Park, uh, which is literally a two-minute walk from where I live here in New York and, and one of the great oh. restaurants in the world uh which we'll go to once or, or twice a year uh when restaurants are open and it uh, it was pretty yeah. cool to hear you tell that story oh
2: uh, we went there and drank some 23 year old and uh <laughs> uh, I, uh i called in every favor i could call in on that trip uh it was really funny we stayed in a really really fancy hotel because i was like well if, if we're going we're, we're doing it right mm-hmm. and uh I came down for breakfast one morning and Will was already down there and he was like, that's Russell Simmons over there. And I'm like, how in the world do you know who Russell Simmons is? And he was like, oh, I've been listening to people talk. He's, he's a big time producer and entrepreneur. I'm like, thanks, Will. I know who (laughs) Russell Simmons is. But, uh, we had a really, really great time. Uh, I took him to Jersey Boys and we sat in the front row Mm -hmm. and like, that's his era, those songs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh he wept at the end of it. And I was just like this. It was a really, really mm-hmm. special trip for both of us.
0: Well, uh, there's a lot to talk about here in our podcast. I know you don't do too many of them, so I appreciate you doing this one and we'll get to talking about your soccer stories. Cause I've got some favorites. I want to know which ones are your favorites, but first off, I do want to talk about your book. It's terrific. Um, you've written so much great stuff over the years. Um, and, you know, your classics include Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Dan Gable, among others. And you had an anthology, The Cost of These Dreams, which came out in 2019. But this is your first book that began as a book project, right? What got you to do a book now?
2: Correct. My agent refusing to take no for an answer. I wish I had a better story. <laughs> but he was just like, you should you should do this. You'll like this. Uh, uh, you'll like this topic Uh, you'll end up liking Julian. And uh, so I started hanging out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the reason the collection happened is because I couldn't quite unlock this book because Mm -hmm. I was having, you know, I was going through all the things I write about in the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, the book is half a a story about this bourbon and half a sort of memoir about the time I spent with Julian Van Winkle. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... I knew that I wanted it to be a meditation on home and inheritance and family, but I wasn't entirely sure what that looked like or how exactly to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I was really late on it. I mean, the, the collection I did – I mean, this book came first, and then in the middle of working on it, I was like, well, let's do a collection because maybe that will, hmm. you know, keep them at bay a little longer. Uh, so once I realized, you know – You know, I said this, this has become my stock line. I'll trot it out for you, too. But, like, it does, you know, my wife jokingly calls the book Eat, Pray, Love for Dads. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I've rolled my eyes at that. I've also realized now the uh, utility of the simplicity of that. But it is also, in addition to being uh, craven, it is also true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, once I've figured out how to make it A book about someone who makes about the making and drinking of whiskey and what it means, then it started to make sense to me.
0: You did a terrific podcast series last year on horse racing called Bloodlines, which I encourage people to check out. I mean, there's clearly some location and culture overlap between horse racing and the fine bourbon you write about in this book with Julian Van Winkle. What is it about this area? in kentucky that appeals to you so much
2: kentucky is one of those places that is whatever you want it to be i mean it's a place so governed by so many layers of mythology that it's hard to really unwrap it i mean everyone would definitely say now if you ask them that kentucky is in the south and yet it was not a southern state in the civil war i mean it was a border state there were uh you know I think a hundred thousand Kentuckians who fought for the Union and maybe twenty five thirty thousand who fought for the confederacy it was by every metric uh a northern leaning state and yet now it sort of seems perfect that the home of thoroughbred horse racing and and bourbon whiskey and country hams is uh pretends it lost a war that it actually won. <laughs> you know I mean I just think that's like a shorthand way to talk about the complexity of the mythology of Kentucky. And I find that very fertile.
0: You get really personal in this book, as you mentioned, you know, not just about the Van Winkle family, but about yourself and your family and even the efforts you and your wife, Sonia made to add to your own household, which you've now done. What went into that decision to include your own story in this book? Did you fight it? Did you just say, I'm going to go with it? How, how did that come about?
2: I couldn't really figure out a way not to. I mean, as weird as that sounds, I, you know, I wanted it to be a story about the time I spent with Julian and to eliminate the single sort of largest cause of stress and anxiety in my life during that time felt like it would make the book fiction. And it also just felt like readers wouldn't know, but they would somehow know. Mm-hmm. You know, people know when you're pulling punches, and so uh, I just—I don't know. I—I I felt like I wasn't creating a story as much as I was taking notes on something that was happening organically, and then just trying to faithfully uh, represent that to people. So, I mean, I don't—I uh, don't know how I could not have done it, frankly.
0: As I was reading, I was thinking in a lot of ways this book is a, a quest story about a lot of things, but including Julian's attempt to come as close as possible to recreating this magical bourbon that no longer exists. What did you take away from from following that quest so closely?
2: That close is the whole thing. That like that getting close to something that probably didn't exist anyway is the best we can do. I mean, when, when, when when the thing you're chasing is mythology, you know, how is LeBron James supposed to be as good as the Michael Jordan who exists in our imagination because that person isn't real. You know, I mean, it, 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 there is always something very dangerous about trying to compete with the ever improving ghost of something now gone and cherished. And so, I mean, in a lot of ways, one of the sort of heartbeats of the book is a meditation on this idea of the power and limits of close. My mom used to say, you know, study for 100 and you'll make a 97. You know, I mean, it's sort of like that.
0: I mean, in that way, I was wondering, like, this isn't, I guess, a sports book, but there certainly seems like a lot of commonality between that quest and and what someone in sports is trying to achieve.
2: (sighs) I mean, that's interesting. I mean, there certainly is... I mean, sports are really about private, grueling attention to detail. And... All the other stuff is just window dressing. And so, uh, you know, when an athlete declines, it's almost always because there are things we don't see that have slipped. Uh, and but I mean, it's that attention. That's why Tom Brady is remarkable, is that he mm. is still willing to pay the cost, which, you know, you do sort of wonder, like, what are you doing? You know, I asked Will. Uh, one time, uh, not that long, Uncle Will, not that long ago, do you have any regrets? Mm -hmm. And the only thing he regretted was every time that he chose himself or his work or, you know, uh, whether, whether his career or going on a fishing trip with friends, every time he chose himself over his family, in hindsight, he regretted that. And he almost never did it. I do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, that was very interesting i've been thinking about that a lot and you just wonder like which of these really great athletes are going to look up one day and just be like i just kept paying the cost because i didn't know another way to live not because this is what i wanted
0: i mean i don't know what your experience is as a writer i can tell you a little bit about mine so i'm in my 40s actually late 40s now you're a few years younger than me and I know throughout my 20s especially, but 20s and 30s, that choice I made was a lot to do the work ahead of family stuff. Um, and then I saw some writers that I really respected, not a lot, but maybe a couple, who I felt like were incredible writers and they got into their 40s and started didn't work as hard in my mind and their stuff wasn't as good. And I, I use that as some motivation as I got into my forties of, of like, I I don't want to let that happen to me, but I've struggled a little bit with some of that is stuff that's good for their life. You know? So how do you keep at a really high level into your forties and for lack of a you know, better expression, stay hungry. That's, that's a challenge, right? you got to find a balance.
2: I went to Bill Nack's funeral. Who uh, uh, Did you overlap with him at Sports Illustrated?
0: Yeah. I, I fact-checked uh, a few of Bill's stories, and he was cool enough when he visited New York to go out with some of the fact-checkers and reporters for oh. drinks, which was great. He he's ama- was amazing. Incredible guy.
2: At his funeral... His kids talked a lot about their great memories of big family dinners all around a stove with Bill, and he's wearing an apron. His kids weren't talking about, you know, the narrative power of pure heart. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, I really, you know, that was eye opening, certainly. Uh, I mean, you know, it's interesting. A guy who writes for ESPN, Times, you know, who I think is probably the best magazine writer who ever lived. Uh, is in his, I don't even know how old time is, 60 maybe, and Hmm. he is still vibrant and hungry and yet is sort of the best version of himself. And so, like, I think that's a model of a way to, to, you know, to still be hungry for art, but to to I don't know the right way to say it, but to understand the commerce of it is all bullshit. And that it's the craft or the art, it's the craft of it, and that you know, that feeds you internally and makes you better for all of the people around you because you're the sort of fullest expression of yourself. To get obsessed with the commerce of it at the expense of family, friends, relationships is, I think, where it goes off the rails. I mean, you know, we're not naming names, but we have a a couple of mutual friends who sort of went off the rails.
0: Did you ever see the end of the documentary on roger ebert when bill knack he recites a poem i'm trying to remember what it is but it's it's amazing and they were friends at the university of illinois going back a long ways
2: which of course they were by the way (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean you imagine that student paper you got roger ebert and bill knack
0: not bad not bad um i want to get into some of your soccer stories I feel like you could do a whole book anthology just on your soccer pieces over the years, but am I I wrong? Am I wrong? Uh, You should, but am I wrong in asking if it was never really inevitable that you would get into writing stories about the sport of soccer until you did,
2: you know, it's funny. I did a study abroad in, I lived in Florence and it was when, uh, Ronaldo fat Ronaldo was playing for, uh, for Inter Milan and Gabriel mm. Batistuta was playing for Fiorentina. Yeah. And like, that was my introduction to soccer. And I, you know, we used to go and, you know, the whole crowd yelling Bati goal. And like my, that, that was my introduction to it. And so in some ways it sort of it was inevitable. I mean, one of my great memories is, uh, when uh, Davide Astori, the captain of Fiorentina, died several years ago, I went mm-hmm. to his funeral, and uh, it was one of those things where I was in Florence for 24 hours. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and I landed. I went to the. I went straight to the square where the funeral was, and then I went to the restaurant where I used to go all the time, right by my old apartment. And sat down, and I wrote the story sitting there at the table at this restaurant, and it just was very, very strange because like some of the same people were there. The old man sort of looked at me like he mm-hmm. sort of recognized me, and I was like, anyway, like that felt like a circle being closed. But it was, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, Gabriel Batistuta was very much my introduction to all of this.
0: By the way, I, I, I recently interviewed uh, Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo. He's a little sensitive about that Ronaldo stuff. <laughs> Is he really? <laughs> he's surprisingly, I mean, sensitive in, like, in a human way. Like he, 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 he like, I shouldn't talk about it too much because my story's not coming out for a little while yet. But you know, he owns a soccer team in, uh, in Spain now, Valladolid, which is a little bit like Michael Jordan owning the Charlotte Hornets. And Ronaldo's trying to find sort of meaning in, in what he's doing. And he hasn't played soccer in two years. That's a good story. You know, I'm really,
2: has, wh- like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Hasn't played?
0: Well, I mean, like, there's always legends games, right? But he actually really misses not playing in the legends games. Uh, he said that the last time he played soccer was like two and a half, three years ago, and you know he's obviously carrying a lot more kilos than he used to. And he says that like when he would play, his 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 mind would want to get to the ball that was like a you know a header, and his body couldn't do it, and he'd get injured. And, you know, this is one of, like, arguably the greatest pure striker of all time at his height. Um, and he just wishes Dude, he could g- get Time, back time to, is
2: undefeated.
0: Uh, yeah. But he just seemed like, for a guy who has been uh, in the late 90s, was called literally the phenomenon. So he was otherworldly, that he's very, very human, now and that makes for a uh, made for a good story. I think
2: it's interesting to me. Uh, Messi, the 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 durability of Messi and uh, Portuguese Ronaldo uh, sort of paper over the fact that m- maybe more than any other global sport, the time on the top of a mountain for the best soccer player in the world is like fifteen minutes. I mean, the number <laughs> of people who were the for a flickering moment were the best in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. other sports don't have that kind of turnover. I think it has to be because the pool of potential stars is so much bigger than the pool for any other sport in the world. But, right. it, you know, if you're the best soccer player in the world, you better look over your shoulder because it, it is about to end.
0: Ronaldinho, a guy who was incredible for two years and yeah. then dropped pretty precipitously. I mean, even Ronaldo with his injuries, unfortunately, you know, was was not the same player afterward, even though he won a World Cup. Yeah, I mean, that's why, like, yeah, like, the fact that Messi and Ronaldo have been at the top now since 2008, 2009, it makes it even more incredible when you think about it.
2: Well, it's it's crazy when you think about that. I mean, you know, everybody else, you know... you know, your 15 minutes are almost up. That's it's, it's really something. I mean, like, this has been a real golden age because of that.
0: Now, I've got some of my favorites of your stories that I want to ask you about, but you tell me first. Do you have a favorite soccer story you've done?
2: I have. It's interesting. I like the places. You know, mm-hmm. that's what I remember. I mean, I remember, uh, uh, you know, I remember I love Torino. I love going to Juve games because I just love that big square and I love having a Negroni or a Boulevardier. Like I just love Torino. There's a, uh, there's a restaurant that is, that is a huge sort of UV hangout, like the kind of place where you might run into Gigi Buffon. Uh, and it's right on the, uh, uh, it's right on there on the river. Uh, I'm looking for the name right now because I think it's, uh, I have it marked on my Google map because like, uh, My favorite. So my favorite thing in the world is if you're going there for a game is to go have a like three hour lunch with all the old (laughs) men at this restaurant. And like, I really like that. Uh, uh, I really, really like Buenos Aires. Uh, And I've been to a couple. uh, I took uh, I took Sonia to River Boca and didn't tell her what it was. I just was like, I want to show you something. I'm not going to tell you any of the backstory. And like, we got there. She was like, "What is this?" I'm like, "I know, right? Like, this is crazy." Uh, we had tickets, the whole deal. You know, uh, they have separate security lines for men and women. And yep. she just looked at me, and I'm like, "Look, it's going to be fun." Uh, uh, but anyway, like, I, I, so I like the places because I think uh, I think soccer games when they are at their best. Uh, allow you to witness in real time something very, very old. Mm -hmm. And so there it is, Restaurante da Angelino. Angelino. If you're ever in (laughs) Turin, you want to go to Angelino. And it's like, you know, this is where, like, you know, the the pictures of Juve players in there cover the walls and Mm scarfs, and it's really great. But I love that place so much. Uh, But, you know, I really like – I like – Soccer games as windows into something. I love going to the uh, Roma Lazio, uh, the Mm. Eternal Derby, for that reason. Uh, I really like Liverpool. Like, I really like the city of Liverpool. Uh, Mm. I really like the city of Manchester. A really good friend. This is small world stuff. But so the playwright Tennessee Williams grew up in my neighborhood in Mm. Clarksdale, Mississippi. Like, all those characters in those books are like people my mother knows. You know, like, there, there is a Blanche. She grew up next door to me. There's a baby doll. Uh, her daughter is my mom's best friend. There is a brick. His uh, younger sister was my elementary school principal. And so the BBC came to do a documentary, and the the town just sort of assigned my mom to the producer just to make sure that, like, she felt welcomed. It was very important to them that this BBC crew felt, like, hospitality. And so the uh the producer and uh her name's Carmel and her husband Richard, have gotten to be really really good friends and they live in Manchester. So like mm-hmm. I love going to Manchester and then going out with Carmel and Richard. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a lot of a lot of my memories uh are that. You know, I love you've you been to the AC Milan headquarters out in the country?
0: I have not. I've been to AC Milan games, but not to the actual like location. Uh,
2: their facility is so cool. It's like a villa. You know, there's a guy in there. There's an, a really swank. It feels like a James Bond villain house. Like there, You walk in and there's a guy who brings you espresso, maybe a little cookie. And you're just like, this is not like going to the fucking New England Patriots. Like, you know, there's a very dapper Italian gentleman. You know, he gets you a little – there's a little twist of lemon in your espresso in these really nice cups. You're like, this is the most incredible – you're looking out over these gardens, and I'm like, this is nuts. So uh, that's worth getting to. Uh, But I like the atmospherics.
0: No, that makes sense. It also coincides with during a World Cup, the Italian national team always has the best facilities for their team, but for the media coming to cover their team, and there's always – Espresso, everything you'd ever want. It's amazing, um, good stuff.
2: Oh, I mean, like the the, the media
0: bar at Juventus.
2: <laughs> like, let, let me just tell you, it's a lot different than going to get a steak and kidney pie at Man at Man United. You know, where they've got they've got bovril and a and a, and a mm. cold pie with some unidentifiable meat in it, which I love. It's part of the experience. But you you roll into Juve and there's a dude in a suit that costs more than my car, who's like. <laughs> You know, it's pretty great.
0: So I want to ask you about one of my favorite stories of yours, which is your Luis Suarez Uruguayan soccer culture story, which I I think was before the 2014 World Cup, if I remember correctly. And It was. And I don't think you even got Suarez to agree to an interview, but it's one of the all-time write-arounds in that you go to Uruguay and do this amazing (laughs) story about the culture of Uruguayan soccer – that it, it's it's pretty incredible the twists and turns that that story takes you on, and you feel like as you're reading it, like the, we're right there with you as you're trying to kind of figure stuff out. How'd that story come together? anyway?
2: I was doing lots before that World Cup. I did a messy Maradona thing. I did a 1978 Argentina World Cup. So I was down there a lot and I was I started just poking around on Suarez. Uh, Every story written about him says it has this anecdote about when he headbutted a ref at a young age and that sort of predicted everything that would happen. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to talk to the ref. Mm -hmm. And then nowhere on the Internet in English or ultimately in Spanish was that referee's name anywhere. And then I just got suspicious because then I'm like, (laughs) well, then it's obviously bullshit. Like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like if if, and so I was I'm going to go down there and in a funny and yet very serious way, treat this question as if it's the Pentagon Papers. Do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I'm going full, I'm going to do everything possible to find out if this guy exists. Mm -hmm. And if he does, what that says, and if he doesn't, what that says. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to spoil it, but that's the story. (laughs) I mean, that's like, it is... It is understanding that in the grand scheme of things, this doesn't matter at all. And yet I am going to look for this guy like he is like stolen nuclear warheads. Like that's what makes it funny. It's the absurdity of how serious I take it. I mean, that's why it's funny. Because like I never fucking wink at the camera. You know what I mean? Like, and yet you sort of know I'm that this is absurd. And like the absurdity of it. Anyway, I was proud of that because it's, you know. Because I don't wink, I don't think.
0: I also just thought along the way that you learn so much about why this this tiny country has been able to win two World Cups, but also the, the their approach, their their cultural uniqueness with soccer, totally, and all of that was there. Just loved it.
2: Um, you know, it's interesting. You can do those things as long as they happen while something else is happening. That's what I liked about it. If if I would have at the beginning said, I'm going to explain those things to you, that's a real snoozer. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it was just, it sort of evolved and was evoked. So at the end, you feel like you understand something you didn't at the beginning, but it never felt like homework. Like I felt like that was the trick there.
0: Right. Um, There was another story that you did in Brazil. This is also ahead of the World Cup in 2014 in Brazil about... The protests and, and everything that had happened around the 2013 Confederations Cup and the culture of the Black Blocs and, and all sorts of folks. Um, now, it's funny because my personal memory of, of the two of us in Brazil was during that World Cup at Bar de Gomes in Santa Teresa and, and our guy Pens. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I love place. Pens. <laughs> It was a waiter there, I should explain. <laughs> but, like, you spent a fair amount of time in Brazil, didn't you, for that whole period? The, I was there a lot. Uh,
2: and, uh, uh, I mean, it's interesting to me that, I mean, because not, not only did I write all those stories, but I also, uh, uh we did a bunch of TV pieces, mm-hmm. and, uh, so, uh, Here's what I found. Uh, uh, so the, uh, we had to cut this. I found the piece. We had to cut this from that Generation June story because the Brazilians who worked in the ESPN office said that I was being crazy because this could never happen. But, uh, uh, I talked to, uh, I went and talked to the military club, uh, and basically a retired general said that the, there was going to be a right wing uprising in Brazil, uh, Uh, And here's what he says said, I think there's a line it is not written it is not drawn it is not drawn but there is a line he cuts his steak and takes a bite is it possible for the military to take over a government now I ask him. He thinks scrapes rice on his fork with his knife it's a matter of balance he says finally there's a price to be paid you cannot be pushed until we say okay now I will pay the price and it's so interesting in the hindsight of seeing what uh, uh, seeing what happened in Brazil because like it. You know, I was sitting one night with those protesters outside and it was, you know, they were the Bob Dylan lyric. There's music in the cafes tonight and revolution in the air. Like that's the closest I think I've ever felt to like inhabiting that line. And it was this real moment when anything seemed possible. And yet, uh, I mean, even in my reporting, I was seeing the backlash brewing uh, Mm -hmm. to all of these things. It's pretty interesting
0: that led eventually to Bolsonaro be becoming president of Brazil.
2: Oh, I, I, t- I talked to his son. I mean, I interviewed his son. And by the way, when I wanted to interview his son, my translator was like sort of rolling his eyes at the American trying to find the single most extreme person to talk to. And yet, <laughs> his father's now the president of Brazil.
0: I think the first time I ever heard the term Antifa was right around that time, and it was connected to the black Locks in, in Brazil. I mean,
2: I, I marched with the black blocks, you know, combat helmet, tear gas. We did the whole thing. Uh, uh, I mean, it was sort of a, I mean, I made fun of it in the story. You can read it. It was sort of a clown show. You know what I mean? It was like, uh, you know, it it was a lot of what it felt like sort of middle and upper middle class kids Mm -hmm. just breaking stuff. But, uh, I mean, it was all the, the, I remember all that really well. I mean, it was, you know, black blocks, uh, yeah, that's when I, it's interesting to see those things make its way here. I remember in Brazil when the cops were sort of shooting tear gas and it was all nuts, just saying, well, that could never happen here. And was totally wrong about that.
0: <laughs> now over the years, whether it's been, I remember this, like in Italy, you, you paired up with, I think it was Tancredi, Palmieri, journalist over there. He's just a, a unique guy. Uh, is the only way I can describe it. Like, like, have you had, like, it's translators, interpreters are another thing uh, that allow you to to get the best stuff. And, and this stuff isn't cheap from a journalistic perspective to do. But how many sort of different Tancredi Palmieri's have you had over the years? I've got
2: dozens. I still talk to them. I talked to one of them the other day. Uh, uh, I'm working on a book and I needed to find someone in Italy. And so the Italian guy you want... Uh, for those folks who are out there working on stories There's a guy named Paolo Morelli. And he is in, uh, he's in Torino and, uh, but he's, he's really, really good. Uh, I mean, the guy in France I've used over and over and over again, uh, Arnaud, uh, Aubrey is really, really, really good. I got a Oh, did you meet Flavio? My, the lunatic who was with me every moment of every day in Brazil, crazy Flavio. He's the best. He would have been with me. If I was at Barta Gomez, he was with me. But he was hilarious. Uh, He's really good. I mean, it's the whole game. You know, I mean, like, you got to find... It's hard to find the right person because uh, you need them... So much of an interview is the little asides you make to manage mood and energy and to sort of stop something from brewing that you didn't intend and just to sort of, like manage the energy and so i need first and foremost a translator who understands who understands that who has emotional intelligence and who knows to translate every single thing i say even if it doesn't make sense so that i don't lose my ability to control the mood
0: and that's why these these operations take time right
2: it's pretty intense i mean you know the uh we did that thing about the 1978 world cup and uh the military dictatorship torturing people within blocks of the of the stadium where all the games were to the point that these people in their cells in these concentration camps could hear the games, and you know that was I've got a really really great translator based in uh, in Buenos Aires, uh, Leo, and he uh, he and I still talk. He's great. Uh, he you know he and I had some very very emotional conversations and he was very good at sort of following my lead and managing the mood. And then later, once he sort of totally got what was going on, was just doing it on his own. And, you know, I mean, I spent months in Argentina doing that.
0: I guess the term for listeners I should use is fixers. Uh, sometimes you hire people who can interpret like, you know, and translate if you don't speak the language, but then the fixer who sometimes is the interpreter. Sometimes it's a different person, um, is someone who can get stuff done, who has local knowledge, who can make your reporting a bit smoother, but like, you know, it's a significant operation, but it's, it, it helps so much to have people. And you end up as a journalist making, you know, like lifelong relationships with, with these folks and working with them again. Um, I'm trying to remember like during the World Cup itself in 2014, you were in Brazil for part of it, but weren't you traveling to like other countries during that World Cup in writing?
2: I did. uh, I think in the first month, I think I did 20, it was 28 days, like 25 stories, 22 cities, 12 countries or something. I mean, it was crazy. And it was uh, Leo went with me everywhere uh and he and i i mean we were moving nonstop we did everything from you know uh i watched uh i watched a, a us game in venezuela with hugo chavez's daughter uh uh we did you know uh, uh i mean we did wild stuff i uh uh we went and watched uh the most dangerous city in the world was pedro
0: oh san san pedro sula honduras
2: yes so at the time, it was the most dangerous city in the world. So we went and watched a Honduras game uh, at the waiting room of the city morgue, uh, which was wild. Uh, you know, we did fun stuff. Like, I, you know, I, I, I rolled through Mexico City. Uh, I went to Mexico City and talked about the uh, Latin American World Cup with Gabriel Garcia, Marquez's editor. You know, it was just like everything you could think to do. We just did it. It was awesome.
0: I also remember a Paul Pogba story you did right before the 2018 World Cup that France won. So you look good by deciding to write on that guy. What, what, like, what was Pogba like in your experience with him?
2: I mean, he was lovely. His house was really weird. <laughs> uh, he had a huge uh, one. He had a uh, staircase that was clear. That the steps were all full of fake diamonds and then underneath the staircase was an enormous taxidermy lion with his foot resting on a marble soccer ball like it was real i was just like oh my god
0: you sure he you sure he didn't buy that from mario balotelli when he left manchester (laughs) i mean
2: there's no telling like it clearly came somebody i I used to think like well maybe this was zlatan's house you know what i mean like (laughs) it felt like it was one of those things that came with the house like, otherwise, I'm not sure where you get an endangered species. <laughs> I, I did this thing with this bullfighter uh, in uh, uh, Mexico, and we were driving over Mexico, and I had a photographer, uh, a guy from Getty named Nick LaHam. I don't know if you know Nick. Nick's great. Mm. He uh, he and I were there, and we ended up at this heavily armed compound of what I assumed was a drug dealer, uh, way out in the middle of nowhere. And this guy had this very elaborate horse ring where you could go and we would sit behind this glass window looking into the horse ring and people brought us tequila and tacos and food and the bullfighter was looking for a horse and we were walking around the house and there was a bear in a cage and then there was like a huge stuffed white tiger which I think are endangered, I don't know. And Nick was about to take a picture of it. I was like, dude, put your fucking camera down. <laughs> like, 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 look around, man. Like, let's, get, let's just get out of here. Like, don't be taking pictures of, like, the gun runners fucking stuffed endangered animals. Like, let's just low profile. Uh, so, anyway, I don't know where Pogba got the lion.
0: So, do you have, as a, as a soccer person, I love reading your stuff, especially on soccer. Do you have any more plans to do soccer coverage in the future?
2: I was all set. Uh, shout out to Andrew Guest at Liverpool. I was all set to really go hang with uh, Juergen. Pre pandemic. Oh, so that's been blown up. Uh, but as soon as, you know, I mean, I'm, it's my sort of, fa- it's my favorite thing to do. I mean, if I had my druthers, all I would do is write about <laughs> soccer. Uh, I mean, I mean, for real. I mean, it's my favorite thing. I find the, I find that you can, do this for your whole life in really interesting places with really interesting people and never write the same story twice, which feels harder and harder in American sports. And so I love it. I mean, I'm hoping to do lots more of it. That rhymed. That was unfortunate.
0: That was the reason why I went full-time soccer back in 2009. I, I covered college basketball before that and soccer, but I liked college basketball and the stories, but the variety of stories in soccer was so much greater and I didn't feel like I was writing the same story ever. No, no,
2: it's very different. I mean, it's interesting because, uh, uh no, that, that, that's, a, that's a really, that's totally true. I mean, I, I find, uh, you know, I'm happiest when running those things down.
0: Random question as we wind up here. Appreciate you taking this much time. You are on Instagram now at oh. uh, Wright Thompson Books and... I know you you were you got off Twitter. I, I don't really want to get into why you got off Twitter, but like, are you enjoying Instagram? I sort of had
2: to get on Instagram. Uh, the book people told me, so <laughs> I was not looking forward to it. I had someone do it during the, for me during sort of the real launch of the book, mm. uh, and then now now I have it, and uh, uh, I'm gonna have to take it away from myself. I mean, you know, my self-control is not good and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, it's sort of a dopamine hit, although it's way better than it's very different than Twitter, which I know a lot of people are like, well, no shit, but I mean, I didn't know anything about this everybody just likes to look at nice pictures and nobody seems to be really angry. So I like yeah. that. I mean, I just don't have, uh, uh, I don't have, uh, there's just not a lot of negativity. You know, people seem gen- genuinely happy. So, uh, I'm moving cautiously forward.
0: Yeah. I, I like Instagram. I, I I'm not naive. I know there's bad stuff on Instagram, but like, it, it just seems like a, a more pleasant social feed usually
2: yeah and and if you are unpleasant you really stand out <laughs> yeah like you really like you really regardless of the thing you were advocating for or against you look like a dipshit if you're really angry
0: <laughs> yeah who gets angry you know what Instagram?
2: i mean like that's not true on other <laughs> platforms but like but you really stand out like there, you're really like people are really like oh wow you're nuts so i like that about it it's curatorial in that way
0: Wright Thompson works for ESPN and is the New York Times bestselling author of the new book, Pappy Land, A Story of Family, Fine Bourbon, and The Things That Last. Thanks so much for coming on the show, my friend.
2: No, man, it's my pleasure. I mean, you spend three weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and you get to call <laughs> yourself a two-time New York Times bestselling author. So it's, uh, I mean, I'm a hundred percent doing it, but it's pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> let's be clear. It's not like I'm John Grisham. You know, I, I didn't camp out there for like three years, but, uh, uh, uh it is pretty funny. It's like, uh, I have a friend who remained nameless who used to like complain about how they never won any journalism awards. And then when they did, I saw, uh, their bio and it was like the award winning. And I'm like, Oh my God, you <laughs> holy shit. Like, it, it's really funny to know that everyone writes their own bios. Like, I love to read bios because everyone writes their own, and it's such a window into something. I like to try to keep mine really short for that exact reason because I know someone else out there is reading it. Uh, So anyway, I'm a senior writer for ESPN, full stop. Uh, But, no, this was really great. I really appreciate your time, man.
0: Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Wright Thompson as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.